the experience of craving itself is actually very unpleasant. When you're thinking, I want that in that sort of craving thirst filled way, it's a very unpleasant experience because you're filled with suffering because you're in this state of mind that says, unless I have that, I can't be happy. And Suzuki Roshi had one of the best answers I've ever heard. And he said, you're perfect the way you are, and there's still room for improvement. And that's the model I go off of. It's like, how can we continually learn to embrace ourselves and love ourselves, And at the same time, notice that there are things we can do to improve our life. It's in that holding both of them together that a lot of uh, freedom and development can be found. And so we're heading to this really scary place where you know, so many people are getting addicted, but instead of addressing the root cause of the problem, we're using pharmaceuticals to just kind of put a Band-Aid on it. Today's guest is Jeremy Lipkowitz. Jeremy is a meditation teacher and emotional intelligence coach. And I met Jeremy in Chiang Mai, Thailand a number of years ago. Uh, he, he taught meditation classes here. We had some mutual friends. And I knew he also ran a group for men around healthy sexuality. And I didn't actually know a lot of his background story until he had this article published in Men's Health recently about his experience with porn addiction and how it was a pathway for him to discover mindfulness, Buddhism, and meditation. And uh, it was real fun speaking with him. I mean, I've known Jeremy for a bit. I didn't really know uh, his background. We hadn't really had a philosophical conversation of this sort, uh, so it's cool. Uh, we speak about uh, porn and technology, but we also speak about the nature of compulsive behavior, um, how people uh, develop certain behaviors, how we can rewire our minds through things like mindfulness or meditation, but also like the mechanisms that drive us to destructive behaviors, this pursuit for pleasure over happiness and, and whatnot. And I really appreciate his perspective. In fact, through the conversation, he had me rethink the way I set goals and and uh, plan my life, actually, because, um, yeah, well, we get into it, but yeah, external versus internal, all that stuff, practical self-love, lots of good stuff in this episode. You can find Jeremy's work at jeremylipkowitz.com. Um, and uh, something we, we referenced throughout this episode is how men relate to their feelings and sexuality, and we can encompass both those things under arousal. And uh, you know, Jeremy speaks about how lust itself, or even greed, or things like that, uh, they're not they're not evil. Desire is not bad, and I appreciated Jeremy's uh, distinction between cravings and desire. Um, but when it comes to arousal, whether it's sexual or emotional, the way I view it is it's a fuel source. Um, it could be destructive when someone is experiencing arousal, sexual, emotional, beyond their capacity to stay grounded, conscious, uh, beyond their ability to handle it. Um, but when you can handle that, that's, that arousal, emotion or sexual, it can be a source of drive and virtue. And this is something I speak about a lot in um, my free course, Arousal Control Secrets, at arousalcontrolsecrets.com. Uh, it's a free training that I offer teaching uh, ways to conceptualize physical exercises and ways to express this uh, power that is corrupted in so many uh, men of my generation, really of all men, which is our sexual arousal, which uh, translates to our emotional arousal as well. So if you're interested in that, uh, I mean, it's, it's geared towards men. We, with the physical exercises, we are talking about the male body, um, but I know some women have gone through it and found it interesting. But that's available at arousalcontrolsecrets.com. It's a process that has helped me a lot, helped me overcome impotencies, both physical and emotional implicacies. So, rousecontrolsecrets.com. Um, right now, you're listening to episode 087, Jeremy Lipkowitz on porn addiction, mindfulness, and rewiring the mind.
All right, Jeremy, it's great to have you here. You know, it's funny. I mean, I don't mean to tease you off the bat, but everyone, as soon as we start recording, reaches for their cup. So almost every one of my video podcasts start with, uh, sometimes myself, I'll hit play and then I, I start uh -huh. with the cup in my mouth. Anyway, random thing. Um, but it's, it's great like to have a, you here. I think it's a, a fear response. It's like, uh oh, got to get hydrated before it starts. Maybe I was thinking like uh, in the seconds of like waiting, uh, it's like checking my phone. At least when I do a solo podcast, I notice I always start it with a cup in my hand. I was like, why do I do this? Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I, I want to talk to you about phone stuff, but we'll get to that. Um, it's great to have you. I, uh, I knew a little bit about your porn addiction story. I saw your group with Airmo and you're speaking about like sexual cultivation and stuff. And, um, but then I, I, you know, I really learned about it when I saw the men's health article uh, that uh, you were interviewed. Is that how that came about or you wrote it yourself? It wasn't clear. Yeah, so it's it like was first person. Right. It was a, it's an interesting, it was an interview. Basically, um, they sent me a bunch of questions and I answered the questions and then they stitched it together into a gotcha. kind of a coherent story. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So do you mind starting with that story? Uh, I thought it was very powerful and, um, you know, uh, kind of a marker, kind of an epidemic, I think, of our generation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge epidemic, very, I would say one of the most unaddressed issues that people are facing today because mm -hmm. it's such a, such a shameful thing for a lot of people. Uh, people just don't want to talk about it, so it doesn't get addressed, even though it's really widespread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you uh, dealt with porn addiction and that led you to mindfulness. Do you mind walking us through? Yeah. Briefly, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it started just the way it starts with every young boy, I think. I mean, most, you know, sexuality is so normal. And so when you're a young boy, you just get curious about sexual things. You start touching yourself, you start looking at images. And for my started with comic books and you know the macy's catalog and victoria's secret catalog yeah i remember you mentioned psylocke that was uh, definitely exactly. one for me too that's kind of an obscure uh x-men character but always naked or partially naked yeah. yeah yeah uh i mean comic books there's just a lot of very attractive superheroes you know and when you're young you just get interested naturally and that you know slowly developed into just looking at the lingerie section and then over time as the internet progressed i remember having aol you know dial-up internet and downloading you know photos of people in lingerie or in bikinis women in their underwear and over time you know through college it just kept progressing into what we see today which is kind of hardcore hardcore internet pornography with the tube sites uh, and you know, it's the same way I mentioned this in the article, but it's the same way that if you slowly gain weight over the period of a couple months or maybe a year, you don't actually notice you're gaining weight because you see yourself every day, right? So in the same way, I hadn't really noticed that anything was changing or that I was developing any sort of addiction because it was with me my whole life. And so it, it kind of came, came at me out of a, you know, just all of a sudden where I realized that I had a problem in college yeah it's interesting you mentioned that uh, you're 32 right as well I actually just turned 34 a couple weeks ago okay gotcha so we're about the same age I'm 32 and uh, I can't 
you know, we were going through puberty around like file sharing, I guess, before the tube sites. Like, I mean, cause I remember like when my parents were in home or when, like we had a day off from school, my parents went to work. I couldn't wait for them to leave. And then I would download a photo for like 10 minutes. And like, that's like, yeah. that was like the highlight of my day. And if I'm honest, I kind of cherish those memories. I remember the, the amount of excitement. It was like, you know, it was Christmas for the slightly older pubescent boy. And I can't imagine like the slightly younger men than us who they already have the tube sites. I mean, at least we developed some level of patience and I had to decide like what, what, what photos did I want to, you know, if I wanted to download a, a video that could take half the afternoon. Like, I, I mean, because I know you work with a lot of guys with porn addiction. I, I was, I've been curious if you've noticed a difference between guys our age and maybe 25 year olds or 22 year olds because technology has advanced so greatly. It must have effect, has affected our upbringing slightly differently, if not greatly yeah. differently. Yeah, I would say greatly differently. I mean, there's, they're finding out through a lot of the research they're doing now that the, the invention of these tube sites and the sheer volume and diversity of porn that's available now is, is what's mostly responsible for a lot of the, the damage we see in terms of what's going on in your neural development. So back in the day when you, know, you had to go out and buy a magazine and you had mm -hmm. one magazine that you held on to for like a year, mm -hmm it was a very different thing and it had a very different neural consequences, I would say. Uh, so you do see a lot of differences in terms of when people start watching high-speed uh, hardcore pornography. Um, but what we see is that if you are watching it, you know, you see a lot of the same things, whether you're 55 or 25. Uh, it just depends on the degree to which you watch it. Um, and it's it's just so interesting to see how much porn has evolved i heard one statistic that there are more porn sites on the internet than non-porn sites hmm. and it's believable you know like yeah, yeah. When, you, when you get into it you know what's out there there's just it's just a vast ocean of of porn out there um, yeah and, and they must make so much money because even when we think of facebook being so addictive and having all these behavioral scientists to get us addicted it can't possibly be as addicting as every kind of sexual thing you can imagine. Like, um, I know, I don't know if you run ads for your business, but like ads on porn sites, it's actually a way easier experience than running ads on Facebook. Like running ads on Facebook is so, such a nightmare, but running ads on porn sites is very simple. It's very cheap. You can get like uh -huh. thousands and thousands of hits of traffic. Um, and it's kind of the wild west. Cause you know, people are, are there, like they're hooked and uh, it's, yeah. it's just like another level of drug. And I totally believe that. There must be yeah. more porn than not porn. Yeah. And we're living in, you know, what's called the attention economy. So what mm -hmm. people are selling now is your attention and that's the most valuable resource. And so porn hooks you in like no other thing because it taps into, I mean, this is something you know so well and all your followers know so well that our sexual energy is one of our deepest, most primal energies. You know, it's this super strong force. And so when you tap into that, into you know the brain it's just it's powerful yeah yeah and i wonder because um, when i think about like uh, i'm gonna i want to ask you about like some of the pharmaceutical stuff in a second i know we kind of went off your story we'll get back to it too um but um the thing you just mentioned the attention economy on how um you know this is shifted and porn has developed this way because there's money involved right like people aren't trying to get kids addicted to porn but they happen to profit from it like they profit from us being on instagram and i wonder if there's any sort of like economic shift that would actually incentivize the money makers to do what's right 
I mean, not just with porn, I guess with everything is true. I mean, maybe that's uh, just not possible. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I never thought about the attention economy side of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a really interesting question and, and I haven't thought much about it either, but there's so much momentum going in the opposite direction. It's essentially the same as asking, you know, is there a way where Facebook would want to have users using it less often and having mm -hmm. less attention devoted to Facebook and Instagram? And that's their primary source of income. So it's a very hard thing to actually, I mean, you know, in the same way that many of us are addicted to porn, the technology companies are addicted to users' attention. Right. So getting them unhooked from that is a very difficult thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, things to ponder. Um, but all right. Yeah. So you dealt with what many men our age have dealt with on some level. Uh, you, you experienced some, like, I guess you call it a rock bottom to use the addiction term. Mm. Is that fair to say? Yeah. 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 And then that switched to, I believe it was uh, Matthew Ricard's book. Yes. Yeah. Matthew Ricard, oh, that book mm -hmm. was pivotal for me. And so I hit, I've hit multiple rock bottoms in my life, but that first one was so visceral. It was, um, mm -hmm. you know, I can just tell it for your audience. Uh, basically I was in my, I was about 21, maybe I'd, graduated already from college but staying on a year to do research and so i was in this small college town and in your genetics people. you're studying genetics right yeah yeah okay. studying sciences and, and genetics and evolution um and a very successful student you know graduated with highest honors all these things and i remember it was a beautiful sunny day and i was just walking down the street and in front of me i saw these two girls walking in the same direction and they were they must have been freshmen or something, maybe 18 years old and wearing, you know, these tight black spandex yoga pants. And I could not help myself, just uncontrollable desire to look at, you know, their butts as they walked in front of me. And it was, it was just this animalistic urge of just this kind of black hole opening up in, inside of me, just screaming, like, you've got to have that. And I couldn't control myself. I couldn't actually, even though I knew I didn't want to objectify women in that way, I didn't want to like stare at them uh, in that way. I wanted to be more in control. I couldn't help it. And it was in that moment when I realized a couple things. Well, one is that the experience of craving itself is actually very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking, I want that in that sort of craving thirst filled way, it's a very unpleasant experience because you're filled with suffering because mm -hmm. you're in this state of mind that says, unless I have that, I can't be happy mm. or until I get that, you know, I won't be happy. And so I experienced that, wow, this is so unpleasant. And then I also realized that if I didn't change something about my life, if I didn't change something drastically, that was going to be my future. And I was mm -hmm. going to end up as some, you know, 70 year old pervert trying to hit on 18 year old girls mm -hmm. at college bars. Like that was so you know, the imagery of that was so visceral to me to see mm -hmm. that that's where I was headed. And that's when I realized I don't want that future for myself, mm. that I need to make a change. So that's what, what, that was kind of this rock bottom moment of realizing. And, and that led to another realization of just that I wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't mm. actually fulfilled in my life, despite being incredibly successful, you know, so I was super high achieving student, setting all the curves in my classes. I had a lot of friends. I was captain of a sports team, you know, it's very fit. All these things were going well in my life, 
but I was miserable most of the time because I was always looking at what I didn't have or how I should be doing better. Uh, this, that's what really got me into this whole field of mindfulness and Buddhist philosophy and what is the meaning of life and happiness. How do you differentiate between, I don't even know if you do differentiate, but between uh, craving and let's say a healthy desire or like yeah. ambition or, yeah. yeah. That's such a great question because it's, it's one of the biggest misconceptions in the world of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that Buddhism says desire is bad. Um, but there's a huge difference between desire and craving or thirst. And, you know, the way I like to describe it is that there are many desires out there that are actually very wholesome. So desires like the desire to end world hunger or the desire to be free from, you know, addictions or uh, the desire to do good in the world. These are all healthy desires or the desire even just to connect with other, another human being. So there are many wholesome helpful, healthy desires that we can cultivate. Craving is a slightly different form of desire. It's a form that's very constricted and basically says, I must have that. And unless I have that, I can't be happy. Hmm. So it's this very tight, constricted, narrowly focused kind of desire. And it's often, you know, it's often related to kind of egotistical or self-centered uh, like I want to have more pleasure for me, but you can even have forms of craving that look like healthy desires. You know, you might want to, let's say you want to connect with people in a meaningful way and that can be a healthy desire, but let's say it becomes this obsession where you just cannot be happy unless you're connecting with somebody on a deep and meaningful way mm -hmm. that can. So it, it's really the flavor of the craving mm -hmm. and the flavor of that desire. Yeah. So for, from what I'm hearing, uh, the difference is that it becomes like a condition for your happiness. Is that exactly. fair enough to say? Yeah, totally. I, I saw your video on, on relapsing. I want to ask you about that whole concept. But um, mm. the big thing that I heard from you, and actually like one of my criticisms of the whole NoFap world and like the anti-PMO thing is I, I think they kind of go a little too deep on the addiction model of, of mm -hmm. like, yeah, you see, I mean, I've been on a bunch of these forums and groups and I've talked to a lot of guys in these communities and like, they're just like white knuckling through life of like, if they, they're almost craving their day count and they're not really yeah. living their life. They're just like, I'm not watching porn. I'm not actually like, oh, should I relapse? Like life is over. I hate myself. But like, maybe, maybe that's not, I mean, there's a better end game. I always think like there's something to put your attention on more than not doing this thing that's not good for you. Because they're just totally. being, in my opinion, dry drunks. Um, but yeah, so could you, because the thing that I heard in that video was like uh, a lack of shame or like a way to drop the shame, which maybe is causing the addiction in the first place. Yeah. So I, first of all, I'll just say I totally agree with you about the NoFap movement and the, you know, the non-PMO movement. It, there's a lot of it that's has a good intention, but it's misguided in terms of its strategies. And you do see a lot of this white knuckling you know, counting your days. And it's, I think it's just not very useful. It doesn't actually work as well as learning how to open up to yourself, learning how to embrace your sexuality. Um, I think that's one of the big things is, is learning that sexuality is not bad. The desire to watch porn actually comes from a very healthy place. It's a desire to connect. Uh, even, you know, porn itself, it's like, there's no 
there's no problem with sexuality. It's just that sometimes it gets out of control. And so mm-hmm. how do we learn how to get ourselves back into balance? Uh, and so I'm also not really a huge fan of counting days and, and all that. Um, and even the relapse, you know, I think it's more important when we talk about relapse, it's more about how can I make sure that I'm not cheating myself? Because mm-hmm. I had noticed that w- when I relapsed, um, I forget when it was, maybe a year ago, two years ago, maybe more recently than that, I noticed that I was allowing myself to get sucked back into forms of addiction that were unhealthy. And mm-hmm. that was the problem mm-hmm. is that I was kind of lying to myself like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And it is okay. But if you keep telling yourself it's okay and you don't make any healthy changes, that's where it can be problematic. Um, mm-hmm. You had a, you had a second question there that I think I'm forgetting. Um, cravings, the word relapse, shame. Oh, shame. Yeah. That's such a huge, you know, it's, it, it's so pivotal to breaking free from any addiction is letting go of the shame you feel. And that's what causes so many addictive tendencies is Mm -hmm. feeling like, oh, I'm a bad person for doing Mm -hmm. this. And it's one of the reasons why in the work that Ermo and I were doing, you know, in Thailand and, and the work that I'm doing still online one of the most beneficial things for people is just having a space to talk about these things openly with other Mm. men or, you know, women in talking about it openly as well, but being able to realize that you're not alone, that you're not an evil person. You're not a messed up person um, is so healing for so many people that shame is one of the, the biggest things that holds people into addictions. And so yeah. a lot of the work I do is around helping people to let go of that shame. Yeah, it can be kind of like a mind fuck, I think, for a lot of people if like they're like, okay, I identify that this behavior is really bad for me and I'm aware of it now, whether it's porn or whatever. Okay, so that means I need to stop doing it. And then if you do it, well, then this means I'm a bad person. And like the logic checks out, but the irony is like you only break the cycle by forgiving yourself for the time you messed up. You know, it's... um yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't speak about addiction so much, but I help a lot of guys with arousal control. And I see it all the time where a guy will, you know, he'll just, he'll come. It's a normal thing that happens sometimes. And then he'll be, he'll like uh, cite all these statistics about how bad it is for you to do it. And then like, he'll be out of like his life for seven days. And I'm like, it shouldn't be that bad. Maybe you feel sleepy for a few hours. Like it's not, it's not that serious. What's keeping you in it is this self-flagellation uh, that you think you did this horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of my favorite paradoxes in the whole world of kind of self-help and personal development is, you know, and particularly in in Buddhist philosophy, you know, there's this great story of um, Suzuki Roshi, and uh, he's a famous kind of Zen teacher who, from Japan, but moved to San Francisco, and he was teaching Zen to a lot of people in the 1950s, 1960s. And one student came up to him and said, you know, Suzuki Roshi, I just don't get it. Is this path about, you know, becoming the best version of yourself? Is it about, you know, uh, removing mental defilements and, and, and being a better person? Or is this a path of loving yourself just the way you are and accepting who you are just as you are? And it, it, those feel very opposite. Mm-hmm. One is accepting the way you are, you know, with all your flaws and everything. And the other is how do you, you know, become a better person? How do you remove mental defilements? And Suzuki Roshi had one of the best answers I've ever heard. And he 
turned to the student and he said, you're perfect the way you are and there's still room for improvement. Mm. And that's the model I go off of. It's like, how can we continually learn to embrace ourselves and love ourselves and tell ourselves that we're not a bad person and at the same time notice that there are things we can do to improve our life. Mm. And it's a, it's a total, it is a mind fuck. It's a paradox. You know, it's, it's things you have to kind of hold equally that can't fully coexist, but it's in that holding both of them together that a lot of uh, freedom and development can be found. Yeah. I mean, on a rational plane, like, uh, you know, on paper, they, they seem to go against each other, but through experience, like even just what we're talking about, you're probably more likely to naturally do the things that are, will better you if you accept who you are. Like, I, I think totally. a lot of people even like to use the, the weight gain analogy. Like if they really appreciated their body, maybe they would take it to the gym or they, maybe they would stop stuffing. It's like the shame makes it, gives you more to feel shame and full about, uh, yeah. which is, yeah. Um, in, in, uh, in that article, you mentioned rewiring the mind. Um, and I'd love it if you could speak a little bit about that because, uh, yeah, it just, it's just a fascinating way to look at personal growth. Yeah, it's one of the things that opened up my eyes when I read that book by Mathieu Ricard was realizing, you know, this concept of neuroplasticity, which is that in every single moment, we're actually, you know, strengthening or weakening certain neural connections based on what we're doing. And it's not just based on what we're doing even what we're paying attention to or what we're thinking about is strengthening or de-strengthening neural connections. So mm. one of the things that I realized is that over these, maybe the decade that I was watching porn every night for two or three hours a night, every time I watched porn, I was strengthening the neural connections for lust. You know, mm. I was strengthening this pathway for that form of desire and craving that is very unhealthy which was, you know, strengthening the idea that until I have this, I can't be happy. And what's cool about neuroplasticity is that you can, you know, it can, it can be very harmful if you're not paying attention and you can be hardwiring and strengthening things that are leading to your suffering, but you can use it to your advantage and you can say, oh, if I understand that what leads to genuine happiness is, connection and compassion and patience and humility, you can intentionally strengthen those neural connections. You can mm -hmm. say, oh, this is a good quality. In my meditation, can I spend the time strengthening patience? Mm -hmm. So every time you sit down to meditate and you have this urge to get up and stop the meditation, you can say, oh, let's see if I can strengthen my patience. Can I sit mm -hmm. here even if it's uncomfortable? And in those moments, you're actually hardwiring in new patterns of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can start to really affect your life if you do it consistently. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had um, Mark Lewis, uh, who's an addiction, who writes about addiction a lot on a couple of weeks ago. And one thing I got from him was this idea that we practice emotions. This is, these are not his mm -hmm. words, but like just the idea is basically what you said. Like if you practice a certain reaction to a thing, it becomes easier, just like lifting a weight or a skill. And, um, and the porn thing is something that happened to me recently. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't watch porn very often, a couple times a year, but uh, whatever the circumstances were, I, I watched it one time and I was like, okay, this is, you know, this is fine. I stopped at an appropriate time. I didn't ejaculate, blah, blah, blah. And then so two days later, I'm like, well, I could do it again. <laughs> you know, I did it two days in a healthy way. 
and it was a little more mindless. It was, a, it wasn't terrible. But it was a little more, you know, it was down on a, not a great path. And I noticed the next time I've been seeing this woman, the next time I saw her, the way I, I behaved with her was totally different. Only after two times, maybe a total of 40 minutes of stimulation, she, she was like, you're going way too fast. Like what's going on? Like she noticed something was wrong with me because maybe it triggered this old, you know, click, 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 click thing that had been wired into me at a young age. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, there's so much there to unpack. It, it's so interesting. And, and first I would say that I'm not, there's a lot of people in the porn movement who are very anti-porn and they're like, porn is evil. You should never, ever watch it. And I'm more agnostic about it. Like if it works for some people, it works for some people, you know, not, not everybody who drinks alcohol is going to become an alcoholic. Um, and not everybody who eats sugar is going to develop diabetes and be a sugar addict. So I'm very neutral on porn. Um, but it's noticing those tendencies and when they start to become out of control. And it's so interesting that you notice that kind of moving faster or that your partner noticed that mm -hmm. moving faster, because that's one of the main problems with the porn that I see is that it's just such a poor representation of what genuine intimacy is. You mm -hmm. know, it's so focused on the male perspective. It's focused on this kind of just, it's just violent in, in so many ways. I mean, you can find some, some nicer stuff on there, but um, it affects your brain in so many ways. And so when you take someone who isn't like you, who's more out of control and is watching two to three hours a night for a decade, it just totally fucks with your brain in terms of mm -hmm. when you're in an authentic and real, you know, sexual experience with another person, your mind is totally warped on what genuine intimacy is all about. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an issue with all screen interaction because when there's no real feedback, I mean, it's a couple of things. There's no real feedback. Even, even mm -hmm. if like, even if you watch the most wholesome porn, like there's no real feedback. So like your sense of time isn't, isn't right. Um, and also there's nothing physical going on. Like in a video game even or YouTube, like you can transport your mind to a million places that your body couldn't possibly do in an hour. And uh, it just like, yeah, it disconnects you from reality, which is why I think, you know, porn and video games like stimulate these circuits in us that are, are genuine, I think, and meant for adventure and to make love, but they take us to places way beyond our bodies. So obviously there has to be a disconnection. Yeah. And the other interesting thing that they were doing some research on when people are watching porn and they found out that when you're looking at porn on a screen, you know, when you're not in a, a real actual uh, sexual experience, the way you're relating to the person that you're seeing is the way that you relate to objects mm. as opposed to the way you relate to another person. Mm. So when you're sitting in from, front of someone talking to them, you actually have certain kind of neural connections being activated that are associated with uh, how you talk to a human being. But when you're watching porn, the kind of neural networks that are activated are the ones that are associated with how you deal with objects like pencils mm -hmm. and cups and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a real sense of changing our relationship to our sexual partners where it becomes more about this person is an object that's going to give me what I desire. Mm -hmm. And that's what I noticed in my experience. It's one of the reasons I was so afraid is realizing that I was sleeping with so many attractive women, but they were just objects to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like, okay, let me find a new person to sleep with and it wasn't fulfilling it was just like trying to to feed this thirst and this craving that was never going to be satisfied mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. Have you heard the statistic that um, like one in five millennial men have a psychogenic or not psychogenic, but one in five millennial men have a sexual dysfunction? Mm, I haven't heard that, but I totally okay. believe it. Yeah, I actually, I actually, I remember right now the the place I saw that was in an ad for like these Viagra dispensaries. I don't know if you see see them. There's like Blue Chew uh-huh. and Roman. I'm surprised. Like they, some of them are like uh, are uh, funded by major incubators. Like they're just pumping out Viagra subscriptions to young huh. guys. Um, I guess you're just hearing about it now. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, you know, it's interesting because. In the work that we do with with getting guys off of porn addiction, when guys finally stop watching porn, and let's say they go for like a 30-day reboot or a 90-day reboot where they're, they're cutting porn out of their life for 30 days or 90 days, there's so you see so many times guys actually re-energizing their sexual apparatus. So if they're mm-hmm. experiencing um, you know, any sort of like delayed ejaculation or erectile dysfunction. And when you take porn out of it, it allows the body to reboot. And so you see guys who are like, I've never had an erection, you know, this hard naturally before, Mm -hmm. Um, feeling so much lust for my partner, all this kind of stuff. So it totally, I believe that one in five people have some sort of sexual dysfunction. And it's a scary place that we're heading to, you know, where Mm -hmm. more and more people are getting addicted to porn. And we're using pharmaceuticals essentially to try to Okay, go. Okay. And so we're heading to this really scary place where, you know, so many people are getting addicted, but instead of addressing the root cause of the problem, we're using pharmaceuticals to just kind of put a bandaid on it. Mm -hmm. So we're not addressing the actual issue. We're just saying, okay, how can we use drugs or or pharmaceuticals uh, to address the symptom rather than addressing the cause of what's happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's uh, it's really terrible. I mean, I mean, it goes along with um, many, you know, Band-Aid solutions with uh, antidepressants. It's not to say that those are bad, but it's like a quick fix when there's maybe a more sustainable, less chemical uh, solution. Um, yeah. And I'll just say, you know, also, I'm not against uh, drugs. I'm not against antidepressants. I know it's it's saved the lives of a lot of people. And I would say, those are definitely good options for some people. I'm just kind of wary of over, uh, uh, over prescription of a lot of these things mm-hmm. when a lot of it can be done in a, in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say a little more of uh, what you got out of um, uh, the happiness book? Cause I, I read um, one of his other books, the quantum of the Lotus a long time ago. And honestly, I think a lot of it went over my head, um, but I, I'd love to, cause I, you know, it's it's pretty rare, I think, that someone reads one book and then they go in a different direction, or maybe you had other forces going on. But yeah, yeah. Um, well, I would say so. That book for me is so it was so beautiful and so timely. Uh, and one of the reasons is Matthew Ricard himself. You know, up until that point, I was a very non spiritual person, and I'm still mostly a non spiritual person. But I've been a scientist my whole life and very much in love with reason and rationality and, and the scientific you know, movement and all these things. And I always thought that anything spiritual was just kind of fluffy, hippy-dippy nonsense. And so I never allowed myself to get into any form of wellness or spirituality because I thought it was all just new age kind of bullshit. 
but this book by Mathieu Ricard, the, the cool thing is that Mathieu himself used to be a scientist. So he got his PhD in molecular biology and then traveled to, um, to Tibet and, and to India and became a Tibetan monk. And so the book very clearly lays out in a very rational and scientific way the causes of suffering in our lives and the pathway leading to happiness. And for me, it was so beautifully laid out. It was such a logical explanation of saying, if you're suffering, these are the causes of suffering. Hmm. And if, if you would like to be happy, this is what leads to happiness. And it was logical. It wasn't like, here's the dogma, here's the doctrine, believe it kind of thing. It was, this is the way your mind works. You know, if, if A leads to B and B leads to C, then A leads to C. You know, it was just, it was laid out in this beautiful way that I couldn't actually argue with. It was so scientific, it, it just blew my mind. And it made me realize, the main thing that I took away is that the mind is so important. And I used to just think that if I could just fix my external world, if I could just get the most beautiful girlfriend, if I could just get the best grades in all the classes, I could get the best body, then I would be happy. Not realizing that my relationship to the things in my life was infinitely more important when it comes to happiness. Mm. You know, you can have all of the riches in the world, but if you don't have the skill of appreciation, if you don't have the skill of contentment, none of it will matter. So you can have all the sex in the world. But if, if you're just constantly hungry for more, you're never going to be satisfied and you're always going to be in this state of suffering. Hmm. And that's what this book helps me realize. Huh. And that, that goes back to the Suzuki Roshi thing you're saying of, uh, I guess, not just loving yourself the way you are, but loving your reality the way it is, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 So, so spirituality, I mean... I think that, I mean, that word is very often, if not, it's very often attached to mindfulness. So I was kind of like, oh, you're not spiritual. I mean, mindfulness is in your Instagram handle, you know, like it's like for them, they're, they're not synonymous or in the same bubble. You know, it's, it's all semantics. So spirituality, it totally depends on your own personal definition of it. I find for me, you know, mindfulness is very much a scientific pursuit that buddhism actually is for me a science of the mind it's about understanding the way your mind works and how you experience your reality so for me buddhism there are many forms of buddhism there sometimes we say there are many buddhisms uh, and some of them do get into more kind of spirituality type things you know there's reincarnation and there's you know different realms of existence and i'm not into that at all and you don't have to be what I'm into is understanding the way your mind works and the sources of suffering. So understanding where suffering comes from and understanding how to cultivate more genuine inner fulfillment. So for me, my spirituality is very much a scientific exploration of my own inner landscape. Hmm. And, and that's really what it's about. And I do think there's some kind of, I've softened a bit more. So now, you know, I, this like interconnectedness and you know compassion and altruism and those are things but in terms of like the universal cosmic consciousness i'm not really into that stuff like hmm. there's a lot of kind of stuff out there that i'm just it's not really my cup of tea it's for other people but for me it's a very pragmatic no bullshit no kind of woo woo spirituality it's just understanding the way your mind works hmm. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting hearing you say that because um, like as I've gone in other directions, like away from spirituality, like I got really into Carl Jung last year, but going deeper into that, which I mean, it's called psychology or science. I mean, so it seemed, but it, like, the deeper I went into that, the more it brought me back to kind of spiritual beliefs. Like a lot of his beliefs were based on um, stuff we can't prove. And, and even, even like you brought up altruism, like the most real uh, argument for altruism for me was this perception that I'm the same person as the person I'm with. So I'm actually being, mm. I'm actually serving myself. Like that's kind of like what, uh, when I'm at my best headspace, that's what gets me over this dichotomy. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting, you know, there, there are many different ways to connect with kind of motivations for doing these things. And when, when we look at something like altruism, you know, the way that I connect to that of, of why to be altruistic is the Dalai Lama, I think even said this, that actually, I think this was Denzel Washington. (laughs) (laughs) One of the two great men of our Um, generation. Exactly. But I think, I think Denzel Washington said, um, the most selfish thing you can do is to help other people. And what, what he means is like, you can just notice in your own experience that when you're helping someone else, it makes you feel good. You know, it's like the, the amount of genuine inner fulfillment and inner peace and joy you get when you're being of service, when you're helping someone, it makes you feel better than any sort of sense pleasure you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be happy, it's like you don't, even, you don't even have to believe that we're all interconnected. You could just look at your own experience and realize, the, you know, the, one of the core foundations of Buddhism is just this understanding that we all want to be happy. You know, we're all trying to be happy in, in certain ways. Everything we do is, you know, has this veil of, you know, other intentions, but it's because we think it will make us happy in some way. Hmm. And if that's truly your goal, then looking at what things actually bring more happiness And that's why it's a science of the mind. It's just looking at your experience and realizing, does this bring happiness? And I realized looking at porn, it wasn't bringing me happiness. Mm. You know, trying just to have as much sex with with as many beautiful women as I could, it wasn't bringing me lasting happiness or fulfillment. It was a short-term hit of dopamine Mm -hmm. that temporarily kind of like made me zombie out and forget what was going on. So it's a bad investment of time yeah attention exactly yeah 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 uh, it reminds me of uh, a couple i guess it was last year i had um a guy who was speaking on this idea called the abundance model where like he suggests that people give a a percentage of their income to things that uh, are good for the world and you know he has this uh what a lot of people call a mystical belief system of like you know basically karma you're going to get it back and like he has a lot of it's kind of in depth you know it's hard for me to buy it but the thing that kind of sold me on it was just the idea that when you delight someone who needs something more or whatever, giving in a way that feels good, you're, you're paying for something. You actually feel good. You spend a hundred dollars for $200 worth of joy. Then that's a, that's it. You don't need to get it back. Uh, so that's uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I love talking about karma because I feel it's so misunderstood. What karma is in that situation is, you know, a lot of people think karma is like, if you save, you know, if you, if you do good things, then like something totally random is going to good is going to happen to you later. 
And let's say if you tell a lie, then like a piano is going to fall on your cat. <laughs> right. You know? And someone's like, oh, well, that's his karma. And karma has nothing to do with that kind of magical system. Karma is simply the law of cause and effect. Karma is that whatever you do, you know, has consequences down the road. And everything that exists in this present moment is because of the causes and conditions that come before it. So it's a lot mm -hmm. like um, pool or billiards, like the position on the, of the balls on the table is because of how it was hit before and just all the geometry and everything. Mm -hmm. So in this example of doing something nice for someone, or like buying something for someone, the karma there is that when you have that act of generosity, there is the immediate consequence of the joy that comes from thinking of someone else. Mm -hmm. And that is the karma. That's the joy that comes. That's the consequence. Hmm. And maybe it'll come back to you later, but maybe not. Yeah, I'm wondering now with uh, it's like the opposite where someone, you could say that uh, the bad karma is your conscience, like immediately um, punishing you for doing a thing that you knew was not good. Right. But then I'm thinking about like going back to the shame thing we were talking about a guy who makes himself feel bad because of maybe bad wiring or conditioning or, or anybody who makes themselves feel bad because they, you know, they think, oh, I wore a skirt this long, I'm going to hell. Like, that's not, that's a maybe a misdirected conscience or, or you know, it's just up to opinion. Is, do you have any thoughts on maybe wrong wiring or people in the wrong reality or, or experiencing effects that shouldn't be the right, or isn't, isn't the best, you know, it's like a self-directed cause and effect? Yeah, and that's where, you know, this kind of self-directed cause and effect is understanding that there are certain things that will lead to more happiness. So for example, forgiveness, you know, like let's say you do something that you're not proud of in that moment, you have two options. I mean, you have a infinite options, but you can, for, you know, simplicity, we can say you have two options. One is to continue berating yourself and, you know, whipping yourself on the back like bad person bad person and the other option is you can decide to have a moment of forgiveness and say oh i know that wasn't skillful but i still love myself and i know that i'm a good person and in those two different options you know they lead to very different futures but they that's your karma is the choice you make in that moment has downstream ripple effects mm -hmm. so choosing to say oh that wasn't skillful or i'm not out of that but i'm not going to hold on to it and continue to you know shame myself or judge myself i'm going to let that go is so you know when we talk about karma we say karma only really comes from intentional actions and it's these intentional actions of saying oh okay i'm going to choose to do something so if you accidentally step on an ant and you don't even see it you don't even know it's there like it's not you're not going to be affected by that karma. The world's karma might be affected. We can talk about universal karma, but that's a totally different thing. But in terms of your well-being, you know, comes from intentional actions. If you see an ant and you step on it because you want to kill it, it's a very different thing. Um, mm. And so it's all about the choices that we're making and what are the consequences of where we're placing our attention and what we're choosing to do. Uh, I have a question now on the I'm on the whole goal setting and achieving thing because um, actually hmm. right now I've I've kind of con uh, connected with some friends here. We you know we're kind of living together in quarantine. We're we have a board with all our goals and we're going to support each other with the goals and we're all getting like, really excited about it. 
then I'm, I'm realizing from this conversation, maybe I'm being a little too externally focused because the times I've been really successful or happy, I've kind of uh, been more self-validating, independent of my goals. I'm just curious how, I don't know if you have an answer or anything, but how do you set goals? Do you even bother setting goals? Like what is, what is your take on that whole thing? Yeah, such a good question, especially for all, all of us kind of more entrepreneurially focused people or, or driven people. Um, the way that I like to frame this is connecting to your deeper intentions. Uh, you know, I think goals are fantastic and I do set goals. Um, but looking at why am I setting this goal? You know, what am I trying to accomplish? And there's a, you know, let's say your goal is to, to write a New York Times bestseller, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to get it published. What's the intention behind that goal it makes a very big difference. If your intention is I'm going to write a New York Times bestseller so that I can have all the money and I can, you know, travel to nice beaches and lounge around. It's very different from, I'm going to write this New York Times bestseller because I believe that this can help other people. And so the way that I like to look at it is just continually connecting with what's the intention? What's my, what's my ultimate goal? Why am I doing this? Understanding that the more that we can step into this place of connecting with other people and really being of service, the more happiness we're actually going to find for ourselves. if our goal is just selfishly motivated like oh, i just need more money for myself it genuinely gen generally doesn't lead to as much fulfillment mm. and ease and happiness so i think mm. goals are great but you can you, you see the difference right like you yeah. know when you listen to a podcast from someone who you feel has a really good heart and wants to help the world be a better place versus when you listen to a podcast from someone who's just trying to sell something and just mm -hmm. wants money you feel the difference there you can mm -hmm. feel the like oh i trust this person versus oh this person feels kind of sleazy you know do you always think that uh the service motivation is better than the collective motivation because I, I know you ha i didn't watch it but i know you have a video on setting boundaries which i think you know a lot of people overgive and like maybe they shouldn't give so much or be so outward minded. I mean, how do you differentiate? Totally. That? Such a good question. And it really speaks to the nuance of, of what I just said previously, which is the understanding you have to take care of yourself first. And so the like, wanting more money is not inherently a bad thing. You know, if your goal is like, Oh, I, I want more money, because I know that it helps me to be financially secure. Uh, and I know that I can be more, you know, a better person in this world and lead to better outcomes if I'm not feeling stressed about money. And so taking care of yourself, which includes, you know, wanting more kind of pleasant experiences and, you know, setting boundaries with certain people that need boundaries. That's a totally wholesome thing to do. Right. Mm. It's like setting boundaries is fantastic. Like we need to set boundaries when something is getting out of control. Uh, and knowing when to do that is is just takes kind of practice. Are are you familiar with Taoism at all, or do you only from like the little quotes I see on? Okay, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Or like um, the idea of like even an addiction, like the higher power, like there's something that's not you or other people. There's like even if it's just a concept, there's something else or a way of the universe to follow. Uh, are you into that paradigm at all? 
I don't really totally connect with that kind of stuff just because it's mm-hmm. usually a little too fluffy for me. Like mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds really deep. And sometimes I'm just like, well, does it just sound nice? Like yeah. maybe it just sounds nice and it's not really anything real. Um, I But I think whatever helps people find more connection, mm-hmm. whether with themselves or with other people, like then, then go for it. Um, a lot of Taoism that I see, a lot of the quotes I see and the things I read about it, it it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tao Te Ching full of great one-liners that fit perfectly on Pinterest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I know you uh, had a thing on spiritual materialism as well. Um, I know, especially you, you speak about mindfulness, so you have a very grounded demeanor. Uh, I, I wonder, could you speak, say a little bit about how that comes across in your work and your life and I guess your communities? Yeah. Um, well, I would say it doesn't, spiritual materialism doesn't come up too much in terms of the work I do with guys with porn addiction. You know, it's really interesting. A lot of the work I do with guys around porn addiction, it's very grounded. It's just like really normal guys who are like, this is a problem in my life. I can't keep working like this. And and it's not this kind of more out of this world stuff. Spiritual materialism does show up a lot in the meditation space and and whatever kind of meditation world you're in. And it's essentially, it's like using your spirituality or your spiritual practices in a materialistic fashion, like wearing it on your sleeve, you know? So it's yeah. like, or walking around with the mala you, beads and exactly. Oh, yeah, mala yeah. beads is like one of the best examples. Yeah. Mala beads can be used in a very meaningful way. You know, like you can use it for your practice, but if you're wearing it to signify to other people, how spiritual you are, that's where mm-hmm. it's like, and we all do this to some extent, right? Like, you know, I even have a little white cord from my last mm-hmm. Vipassana retreat. But the the intention is not to signify to other people like, hey, check me out. I'm a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. It should be used for your own kind of personal, like, like for me, this is a reminder of, of certain things. Like there's little three little knots tied in and it reminds me of those things. Um, so spiritual materialism, you see it a lot where people are like, oh, I'm so spiritual you know and spiritual bypassing is a related do you know about spiritual by mm-hmm. bypassing yeah so that's a related thing you see where people kind of use spiritual concepts that sound good as a way to actually dismiss the suffering of people or kind of pass over things that need to be dealt with like oh we're all one so we don't need to like, oh, I don't see race. We're all one. You know, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. racism is real. Mm-hmm. You can't just like say we're all one. It's not a big thing. Um, so it comes in many different forms. And it's, it is one of my biggest pet peeves. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you ever watch J.P. Sears? You know oh, that? I love him. Yeah, yeah. he's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to get him on at some point. Um, oh, cool, man. Yeah, well, this has been great. I'm glad we got to catch up. And um, uh, where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, you can just go to jeremylipkowitz.com um, and you mm-hmm. can find out, you know, some about the different things I do, some of my blog posts. Um, you can find me on Instagram for now at jeremymindfulness. Um, and yeah. I would do you say, say for now because place. you're getting off Instagram? Are you going to change Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, have you read Digital Minimalism? You know, yeah, Cal Newport. Newport. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm starting to, to think about maybe getting off some of this stuff soon. I have also, I mean, I haven't 
posted in a long time. Like I have my assistant take clips, so I don't have to interact with it. But then of course I can't help it if someone, I, I know they message me, I go on and then end up on my feed. I've, I've actually been thinking the same thing. And um, I'm not really sure what to do because, you know, when you're in the industries that we're in, we kind of rely, like how else, I mean, I can't have a, like, you know, a written totally. newsletter, you know? So I don't know. I'm actually, I might actually want to ask you about that maybe later because I'm, I'm also struggling yeah. with what to do about it. A lot of my Instagram posts say, please don't scroll further, which I know is terrible for my analytics. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. we could have a podcast one day on digital minimalism and just talk about, you know, what does it mean and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 I'm going to ask, I'm going to message you about it. I'd, I'd be curious to see what you're doing with that. Um, cool. So JeremyLipquist.com, um, Jeremy Mindfulness for now. <laughs> for now as of june 2020 um all right awesome man yeah thanks again yeah yeah thanks for having me it was a pleasure to talk with you